Uh, well, I'm super excited about today's conversation, uh, as I suppose you can tell by the pitch of my voice today. Uh, and I think a large part of that has to do with the stature of guests we have. Uh, I'm joined today by John Steenhazen, uh, who in addition to being the leader of the official opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, uh, is a KZN compatriot of mine. <laughs> Uh, the latter being perhaps his most prestigious and, dare I add, most illustrious title. <laughs> uh, John, first of all, thank you so much for coming through. Uh, I cannot even begin to express to you how grateful I am, uh, as well as how humbling an experience it is. You know, firstly, to be able to engage with you uh, on some of the issues that I think we mutually regard as being of paramount importance. Uh, you know, as well as being able to record this conversation and share it. Uh, you know, that is, I think, an opportunity that I do not in the least take for granted. Uh, it's why when you showed interest in engaging in the conversation a few days ago over the podcast uh, that I took, it both took the opportunity with both hands uh, and sort of took to it like a fish to water almost. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you in studio today and thank you so, so much for coming through. Great, Pila. It's great to be with you and I can assure you the honor is all mine. <laughs> Having seen the incredible work you and the team were doing here on the campus, mm -hmm. um, I really it's, uh, captured my imagination and... Um, I think that these types of conversations are going to be important as mm. we as we move forward, um, particularly as we start to try and find a way out of the abyss for the country and uh, get us onto onto a new trajectory. And I think that young people, particularly, are going to play a very big role in that future. And it's important that we have these conversations. Yeah, no, I think that's a wonderful note to start it on. Um, I, I think with you, we can almost uh, escape the introductory remarks and the biographical information because of your popularity, or as some would say, notoriety. I think um, it's more notoriety. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think we can skip that, and I think we can just jump right into the conversation today. Um, and we can talk a bit about, uh, well, firstly, what I want to know before we begin is, why politics? I mean, I think it would have, well, I think it's no secret that your life would have been a lot easier uh, if you hadn't taken up the political mantra um, and just decided to do something else. So my question is, well, why politics? Well, I think it might have been easier, but it would certainly would have been a lot more boring. So uh, the great thing about politics is the excitement that it offers for a different day every single day. And I think the realization that politics is the best vehicle to affect change in a country. You can sit on the sidelines, you can complain, you can grumble, you can moan, you can march. The only way you're really going to make a difference is getting into those seats where the decisions are made, getting into those rooms where those decisions are being made and, and influencing them. And, um, you know, I think that's why I, what attracted me to politics. I got involved at a very young age. I was 22 when I first got elected as a city councillor because I really believe that, that young people need to be part of the conversation about their future. I think the decisions that are being made now in the country are going to affect young people the most uh, going down the line. It's their future that's being decided upon. Mm -hmm. And it's better to have that voice, I think, around the table. And, you know, I think, People who say they're not interested in politics, well, that might be the case, but politics is very interested in them. And politics impacts upon every single part of our life. And I think if one looks at what has happened over the course of the last year during the coronavirus uh, pandemic and government's response to that, you can see how politics impacts on people's ability to earn a living, people's living standards, uh, quality of health care and everything. Sure, I think that's a, a, a very um, well useful introduction, if you will, um, because I wanted to first talk about you know the, the, the current protests that are going on, uh, especially at the University of Wits. Um, you know, free education has been an issue, a burning issue, uh, since 2017. Uh, I, I think when former President Jacob Zuma announced 
uh, that you know tertiary education would be provided for those who cannot afford it to the um, as he called it the poor and working class um, and and the the phrase poor and working class is a phrase that we have become acquainted with since you know its inception in the mid-19th century. Now, of course, it has been exploited every now and then to achieve nefarious ends under the guise of social justice. Um, but, but I think it's a very interesting point that we need to start on, especially, I, th- I think it, we'd be remiss if we didn't start on this point, especially because it's the one point that is, um, or the one topic, rather, that is burning you know, the, the forest of our country uh, at the moment. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think the first point I'd like to say is there's no such thing as free education. Somebody pays for it, um, you know, whether it's uh, the taxpayer or whether it's through some other form of, of income, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's paid for. Um, so this notion of free education, I think, was thrown as a hand grenade by Zuma on his way out the door. Right. And it's now exploded you know, perfectly in, in President Ramaphosa's lap because fiscus is severely constrained. It's absolutely impossible to provide a free education to every uh, tertiary student under the current model. Mm-hmm. And I must say I've got great sympathy for many of the protesters now. Um, I think that less so during the Fees Must Fall movement, but certainly I think the cause that's been taken up here, particularly is students that are frustrated and angry that they're not being listened to, uh, that they're not part of the conversation, the decision-making. I think they're feeling very much spoken to rather than yeah. spoken with. Right. And I think that the model that's currently being used is, is fundamentally not fit for purpose, and we need to you know, tip it over and, and start looking at another more innovative way of funding um, higher education. One of the ways that we've suggested is through a taxation system, it's a system used in many other countries, where everyone who qualifies to go to university uh, and has the marks can, can go to university and they can study. Uh, but upon leaving and upon obtaining employment, a certain fraction uh, of the tax bracket is slightly higher until that money is paid back. And SARS then collects the money or the tax revenue collection system collects the money and pays it back to the student, um, the student uh, fees fund. Right. So you're, you're keeping up with, with ensuring that, that payment there. But I think that you know, in a country like South Africa where the economy is so tight and so constrained and there's so little growth, that students are recognising that the only ladder of opportunity for them is by furthering their education. And if you look at the job stats, certainly people who have an education are generally you know, more likely to be employed than people who don't. So you know, what you're essentially doing by not allowing people who qualify and who have the ability to enter into university is essentially kicking the ladder out from you know, next to the wall and, and they, they cannot proceed. Uh, so we have to find a, a new way to do it and we've got to, government's got to reprioritize it. I mean, imagine if we had spent the 10 billion rand we spent on bailing out South African airways on funding the future through students. Instead, we funded an airline that's history now and you know, it probably will never fly again. And yet we've just poured billions into it when we could have rather invested that in our future, mm. particularly through young people. Um, I, I think it's a very interesting preface to your answer to this question that you made, which was uh, first by you know telling us that you're sympathetic with those students that are protesting today. Because, I mean, m- much of what they're going through today is you know not their fault. So, I mean, I suppose the sympathy there is due. But I think it's a very interesting caveat to, to, to a question like this because it's almost as if it's impossible for one to engage in a conversation of this nature and criticise the movement without their intentions being... Uh, sort of uh, questioned. So, so, so I think it's a very interesting point that we've arrived at, where it's almost impossible to disagree with anything um, that that is being proposed in the mainstream without your intentions being, uh, you know, questioned. Gwen Gwen, you wrote a very interesting article entitled "The Tyranny of the Youth," um, and I think that's a very, very fascinating article in light of what's happening now, where it's almost as if um, the youth are driving us into a very, very tyrannical um, order in which, you know. 
where in, it's either their way or the highway. And of course, I'm very sympathetic as well. I can understand where all of this is coming from. But I think the manner in which all of this has been undergone or the manner in which uh, all of these issues have been addressed or, lack, or, or the lack thereof um, has caused an implosion that shouldn't have been there to begin with. Um, I, I think it was pandering to a constituency or preaching to a congruent, uh, as it were, um, for the president, for the former president, rather, to address or to announce what he announced in 2017, given the precarious economic situation that we have in South Africa. So I almost view it um, as, 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 as the wrong approach, as applying a demand-side solution to what many would call a supply-side problem. Because, I mean, or abolishing the tuition fees quote, um, does not do anything to address the supply issue. I mean, universities in South Africa in their meager capacities can only uh, sort of take up or absorb from the uh, matric sort of population about 18% of the students. That has done nothing to address uh, the supply issue. We simply cannot, um, with the current number of universities that are in existence today, absorb every single student in our country. And I think a large part of that is the conversation that we have had and the amount of value that we have placed in universities as opposed to other alternatives. I mean, alternatives are there. I mean, South Africa is one of the few countries in the world where you know where we have more people in university than we do have people in, in, in TVET colleges, which to me just does not make sense. I mean, if you align people with universities, which are a bit more difficult, you are setting them up for failure. And of course, that is something that is going to have very, very adverse effects uh, on, on young people. Yeah. So, so firstly, what do you make of that assessment? And, and what do you think can be done to address the supply side of the issue that has been negated for so long? Yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that what has happened is that universities have been made the be-all and end-all. Right. And, you know, TBET colleges, um, apprenticeships, those sorts of things are, are almost seen as an inferior uh, type of education. And so, and 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 have also uh, suffered terribly of underfunding as well. I mean, many of the training colleges closed down. The, the TVET colleges also underfunded completely. So, and I think that it also speaks to the, the broader problem that we have in South Africa is that we have a massive skills deficit. Uh, we don't have the skills uh, that would feed economic growth. I often use example if we were to strike oil in you know in Limpopo, and the economy started to grow at six to eight percent we wouldn't have the skills to be able to fuel that because we have not invested in skills development in South Africa. And I think it was perhaps the most evident during the World Cup when we had the last big boom of, of construction where artisans had to be brought in from, from China and uh, India and from Pakistan to come and do the work on those stadiums because we just didn't have the skill sets uh, in significant numbers. So what I would look at doing is is separating out at a far earlier level at, at the school level, separating out the streams. So those people who want to follow the traditional route to university and uh, want to you know have a sort of academic uh, course that they would like to do and in, in, in life path that they'd like to follow, uh, sort of in the, in, you know, in, in, in the right stage, be able to be streamed out. And those who want to follow the, you know, the more um, skills-based um, approach to, to developing their future, separate out far earlier, you invest then uh, equally in those streams. And then you end up with a situation like you have in Germany or Switzerland or many of the other advanced economies where it doesn't matter whether you're the, you know, the head of engineering at BMW or the uh, CA of the, you know, of the organization, there's parallel respect for, for both positions and they're recognized as equally important to grow the economy. I think that you know we can have hundreds of thousands of lawyers, we can have you know thousands of doctors and nurses. If you don't have artisans, you don't have bricklayers, you don't have people who uh, have plumbing, who have uh, fitting and turning, engineering skills, 
or the like, you're going to, to suffer. And I think that where we see that probably at its, at its harshest is at a municipal level. There are, I think there's like 32 municipalities in the country, I think, that have an engineer, a water engineer, have an electrical engineer. And if you look at the collapse of service delivery there, it's because we simply don't have skilled personnel to fill those positions. So I think you've got to separate the streams out earlier and give equal emphasis and funding and focus on them and say to people, it's all right if you don't want to be an accountant, a lawyer, or, or a doctor. You know, we, you, you want to be a, a plumber or, a, or an engineer, that's great as well, and, and, and open up that path. Mm. I, I mean, I, I can almost hear somebody listening to, it, to this, thinking to themselves, well, I mean, John is very proficient uh, in talking about all of these issues at a very superficial level and, and sort of ignores the fact that a lot of these issues are plaguing black South Africa or the various black communities in South Africa. How would you respond to somebody who would say to you, well, I mean, I concede all of the points that you have made, but I think what you seem to ignore is the fact that a lot of these issues are, are predominantly racially orientated, where the people that are suffering the most happen to be African. Um, and and sh surely that and the nefarious legacy that we've inherited cannot be divorced. Uh, and I, I can almost hear somebody saying, well, perhaps that's what's at issue here. Perhaps we suffer from a structural racism type issue as opposed to one of um, skills or whatever the case may be or you know some of the cases that you've so eloquently articulated. But somebody might say, well, I mean, perhaps is ignoring the fundamental issue in South African society, which is the effects of racism and the effects of our inherited legacy of apartheid that we have just terribly failed at addressing. Um, how would you respond well, look, to I, that? I definitely think that we've got a long way to go in, in addressing those imbalances. And are we on a level playing field yet? Absolutely not. I mean, we've got terrible scars that we've got to deal with. And if one looks at unemployment, one looks at uh, deprivation, it is largely colour-bound. But it is, the fa you know, if, if you were to just simply... You know, reduce it to a basal thing like race, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of fixing the problem. As we've seen with the way governments approached um, economic empowerment, by focusing on the race rather than on the economic situation of the person, uh, they've actually deepened inequality and, and driven more black South Africans into poverty. Black households are 10% poorer now than before. Mm. So I think that by, by focusing on means-tested empowerment in South Africa is the way to go. So those who can't afford, must be able to be supported. We shouldn't be paying for the sons of Ramaphosa and Motsepe to go to university. We should be funding those who really need it, regardless of the colour of their skin. Mm. So I don't think it's a race thing. I think that, that poverty needs to be the real measure. Mm. And, and if you address poverty, 99.5% of those people who would be beneficiaries would no doubt be black South Africans because of the uh, history of race-based policies. But what we've seen is that layering race-based policies to try and address the ill effects of race-based politics on, and policies on each other doesn't fix it. Uh, we've got to be far more innovative, and, and, and I think that we've got to move away from, you know, from looking at things from from through the racial lens continually, accepting the fact that we've got uh, a dispossession and disadvantage that we've got to overcome. But let's let's rather focus on the root of the problem, and that's why I get frustrated when the media and others beat you know, beat the day up and saying, "Oh, but why do you refuse to accept race as a proxy for disadvantage?" And our response is simply. You need a proxy to measure something when you cannot measure the, the real thing. Uh, you don't need a proxy in South Africa. You can measure poverty. It's any South African earning less than a thousand rand a month. It's there. It's quantifiable. It's able, and it shouldn't matter you know, what the race of that person is. If they are 
living on that on that poverty line, they are the people who need government empowerment, not the fat cat billionaires and millionaires yeah. who keep being re-empowered. Yeah, I mean, but somebody could say that you know the the, the destitution of the uh, of the black populace in South Africa was not as a result of you know their own doing. It was because of race-based policy that they turned out that way, and that it has to be as a result. Um, on the basis of race-based policy that they are taken out of that. I mean, how would you argue against that? Because, I mean, th th that is an argument that I hear, at least in the mainstream, where people are saying, well, you know, it's because of race-based policy during apartheid and previously that we are in this mess to begin with, and therefore we should try and reverse the racial inequalities by trying to promote racial equality through policies um, such as BE and, you know, other forms of affirmative action. Um, I suppose in one sense it makes sense why people would think that, but I mean I think it misses a very important issue, a very crucial issue, which is that if you address uh, you know, inequality, which is measurable, as you've quite rightly put it, on the basis of race, what you do is you don't end up capturing the people who need the assistance. You start absorbing people who would have made it there anyway. So I always say, um, you know, BE, at, at least at the levels it's, been, it's being uh, sort, of, sort of run out, it, it does not capture the South African who's in poverty, who cannot make it past high school, cannot get to university, um, who cannot, uh, you know, get past the degree to be able to sit on those shortlisting boards um, or uh, interview selection panels and be selected for that particular job on the basis of BE because they simply do not have the resources to get there. So I think it's a very important point um, that, that you have just made that I think we need to flesh out just a little bit mm. for somebody who might still be confused yeah. by why John Steen yeah. and accepts that race was used to disempower people but somehow does not accept now that race must be used to empower. Well, I, I use the example of, you know, if someone's got a gunshot wound, you don't shoot them again to, <laughs> to repair them. You, 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 you've got to you know, find something else that's going to, to heal them and get them better. Um, so, you know, using race-based politics and policies to try and fix the ill effects of race-based politics is never going to get there. We've got 30 million South Africans who live in poverty. It's there. They're measurable. 99.7% uh, of them are black South Africans. Focus your policies there. You automatically exclude the elite, you know, the people who've already received beneficiaries. They they wouldn't be in the thirty million pool because they've already been empowered. Instead, in South Africa, what we've seen is these policies, this uh, triple B W E affirmative action, being abused by an elite to be able to create the ultimate insider and outsider economy. You've got a BE is a consensus between big business and uh, and and the ANC. And what at the moment it's doing is, is creating a small inner circle of very, very wealthy people who keep being empowered, um, you know, keep uh, getting every opportunity. And their uh, sole uh, common denominator is to keep the 30 million people who are on the outside out of being able to get that opportunity. If you focus your empowerment on those 30 million people, the inner circle are automatically excluded. And mm. as they should be, they've already benefited. They've already lifted themselves out of poverty. They are super wealthy. They don't need to be beneficiaries of government contracts, programs, and, and assistance. Let them get on with being productive members of society and productive businesses. And let's start giving the people who have been excluded uh, an opportunity to be able to lift themselves out of poverty mm. and into opportunity. Mm. But, but I mean, can't you be accused of um, failing to address some of the legacies of the past, such as, for instance, the dispossession of land or the, you know, the Group Areas Act? I mean... How would you respond to that? I mean, well, we, have, we have a burning uh, land question or a land debate that's currently going on uh, at the moment, which seeks, or at least uh, definitionally, to address the injustice of you know the dispossession of the landless people, or as, as they're called. Um, sh surely something must be done about that as well. You, of course. Or, or will the same argument apply there? I mean, 
when talking about race, you said that we cannot use race-based uh, policies to undo the injustices of race-based policies. Um, but will the same logic apply there by saying we cannot use a policy such as land expropriation without compensation to undo the injustice of the land dispossession that was uh, such a grave injustice in our history? No, because exactly like triple BWE and that it's going to be abused not in the service of the poor, not in the service of the deserving, but in the service of that elite. And that is, uh, they will be the, multi, the, the ultimate beneficiaries of it. Uh, you know, actually, the irony is that, and uh, you know, this may sound heretical to some of the viewers or the listeners, uh, actually, I think we would have been far further along land redistribution in South Africa had the DA been in government. If you look at our policies, it focuses on genuine land ownership. We don't want uh, the state to own land. We want people to own land, which is why we've been so obsessive about title deeds where we've been in government. Our governments in the Western Cape, the city of Cape Town, the 32 municipalities we run in the Western Cape, Nelson Mandela Bay and, and Chwane and Joburg while we were still in power there, were obsessive about giving people title to their property. That is not what the, the purpose of expropriation and that compensation is. If you look at the EFF manifesto, it is to ensure that the land vests in the state. We're going to return everyone in South Africa to being a, a, a serf, into a form of serfdom, mm. where you rely on the largesse of the state. The ANC are not so explicit as you know, in their literature very cleverly uh, about this, but by their deeds, so are they known. And you only need to look at what happened in the last two weeks with uh, Mr. Ivan Clutey in the Western Cape, where he was a genuine beneficiary um, who you know, was put onto a farm and uh, given an opportunity and then was told he had to clear off because an ANC M former ANC MP who owns a big property in Bloberg and had been a beneficiary of three other farms was now going to be allocated his farm. Uh, you know, these policies have got nothing to do with empowering poor black South Africans and everything to do with giving the state control and returning South African citizens to a form of serfdom where they rely on and have to serve the mm. state. But, but, but I mean, I think uh, we need to define some terms here. What exactly is meant by the state? Because some people define the state as sort of a manifestation of the will of the masses. So th that's the reason we have democracy, they'll argue. Um, and the, the, the state is merely uh, sort of a representation of the will of the people. So when it is argued that the land will, or the state will be the custodian of the land, what it essentially means is that the land will be owned by the masses of the people voting. Um, so I, I think there is a misnomer and a myth that needs to be dispelled mm. there. Um, so, so I'll give you this uh, opportunity. Yeah, well, to look, so I mean, now. I think you've got to separate the state from the governing party. You right. know, the state itself is, is 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 an entity on its own, and that is one of the things that's so problematic in the South African environment is that we don't have a capable state that is able to act in the best interests of the citizens, no matter who is in power, and that it doesn't matter whether you've got a DA government or an ANC government their role continues to focus on serving the people. shouldn't matter what political party is there. And part of the reason why nothing really works well in South Africa is that we don't have a capable state, largely through cater deployment. It's eroded the professionalism of the, of the state machine, the civil service. So even when the government does, from time to time, take some good ideas from the DA, like the UIF and the TERS program, using the social grant system uh, at, you know, to help people during COVID, it runs slap bang into the incapable state. And you've seen what happened. The UIF tours all a huge mess as a result of that. So we've got to separate out the state from the ruling, from, from the, the political system. The, the state is not the ANC. The ANC are not the state. The state is there to, um, you know, to do the good, uh, you know, the good for, for the people of, of the country and to, to act in its best interest and there to serve the people. Um, the political party, you know, whichever is in control, 
would obviously then use their policies and, and try and di- direct things. But we mustn't, for instance, fall into the trap that the ANC would like us to do, which is says, l'état c'est moi, I'm the state, like Louis, when it was Louis XIV, mm-hmm. where the, you confuse and conflate, uh, yeah. flip between the two. You've got to yeah. have that separation. Mm. So, so would you then argue that the problem here is that the state is too cumbersome for the role that it has to play? No, I think, it's, I think it, is, it, is, it is over-bloated, right. but I think it's also been used as an employment agency and, the de- and has been used to develop a political voting block for the governing party by simply deploying loyal cadres into the civil service. Mm. It becomes a very powerful voting block for, for government because they have got no interest then in the ANC losing power, which is why they don't go to work to serve the people. They go to there to do the ANC's bidding. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you see this tender fraud, PB fraud, and all these uh, yeah. you know, corrupt activities. It's mm. a direct result of people putting the interests of the party ahead of the interests of the greater good of the people of South Africa. Mm. I, I, I ask this because, um, you know, th- there's a huge sort of emphasis from the DA that the state needs to be limited, that the state needs to be a bit smaller than what it is uh, currently. And my question is, where exactly do you draw the boundaries for, you know, the, the role of the state? Yeah. Because I think that is a very interesting question. Yeah. I mean, and that is, a, it's not a question to which you may apply a general answer because uh, the answer that one may give to that question in, say, America would be different to the answer one sure. would give in South Africa. So where exactly so are the borders yeah. to So be I think that, that one, t- uh, let's just start off from this point. You know, a lot of people say, seem to think that the DA uh, doesn't believe in, in, in a role for the state at all. And I, I think that would be naive in a, country like South Africa to, do, to, to disregard the state as an actor. I think the state is an actor and it does have a role to play in, in improving the lives of citizens. But what it should be doing is limiting its, its scope to those matters that, first of all, in the greater good of, of people and things that people cannot do individually or can only do in, in, in the form of a group, things like defence, foreign policy, those sorts of things, uh, uh, policing, uh, you know, uh, provision of, of uh, certain of the services, but it should not be doing what it's doing now, which is trying to do everything it can to extend itself into every aspect of people's lives. It shouldn't be running an airline. I mean, that's not in the best interest. And I think the measure should be where the border should be is, can a service or good be delivered better through a private sector relationship, or is it better serviced or delivered through the state? And you know, whichever side of the, you know, of that divide, the you know, the coin will fall. That is the best way to go. So let's use South African Airways. Why is it that um, Comair has been able to operate profitably with no single government subsidy for over you know, 15 years in South Africa and profitably, but our state-owned airline has had to be bailed out every year for the last uh, decade uh, with billions of rand? It's because governments shouldn't be in the business of running airlines. That is something that could be better served by the private sector. And I would argue the same with electricity. The state has failed in its duty to be able to provide and reticulate electricity, which is why we sit with uh, rolling blackouts in South Africa. I believe that long time ago, uh, that should have been broken up. And and those elements that, let's say the grid, for instance, could remain in the state's control. But the providers and the distributors of the electricity services would be, I think, far better served uh, as private sector players that are competing with each other driving down prices, ensuring greater competition, and ensuring that, that South Africa would not be where we are today, reliant on one single supplier for, for electricity. Mm. And 
Yeah. Do you think the state has a role um, in education, for instance? Because, I mean, we had a conversation now about higher education and the 26 um, mainstream universities we have in South Africa. Do you think we'd be served a lot better if uh, universities were privately owned for the, for the exact same reasons that you've just listed now? Well, I think that you, what you've got to do is to make sure that, I mean, let's look at education as, as, a, you know, as a good. I think that there is scope for private universities, but I don't think it could be something that could be left entirely for the private sector, provide, precisely because there are going to be students who cannot afford to go to those universities. So I think you're always going to, at both uh, uh, basic and higher education, have a role for the state. But I think that the state's tentacles um, reach far too deeply into school management and the like. I think there should be a far freer hand for school governing bodies and principals to uh, be able to, to run their schools. I think that the state is far too prescriptive on what they should do. Let me give you another example about higher education where I think there is a role for, for the private sector, and that's around doctors and nurses. We have a massive shortage in South Africa of doctors. As you know, many students would know, there's a constraint and a bottleneck on the number of students who can be admitted to medical programs. Here's a great opportunity. We've got private hospitals in the country. Why don't we open up medical, let them open up medical universities where their students could you know, go into those universities and work and learn w in those uh, operational hospitals. But, I mean, w wouldn't you have the same problem of some people being financially excluded from that? Because, I mean, well, I assume that uh, some of those universities started by those private practices will also be quite exorbitant. Well, the state could, the state could you know, offer, a, you know, be given a certain number of places in those universities to be able to place students that they believe are deserving. But what you would do is break the bottleneck up as well and then allow even more students into, you know, who may have been excluded from the state university into... Uh, into those universities. So I think that what you've got to do is broaden opportunity, not narrow opportunity. At the current uh, rate, the state is bottlenecking uh, these key things. And by wanting to retain a stranglehold on you know, the training of medical personnel are actually leading us to a situation where citizens suffer because we don't have enough doctors and nurses to, to service uh, you know, even the most basic forms of health care in, in rural clinics and the like because there's a supply and demand and... The big demand is in the urban areas and there's a shortage and that's where people go and, and it leaves rural areas at, at great risk. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I had a question about what you just said now, um, but, but I've forgotten that. So I think what I'll do is we'll jump onto the next issue sure. and then I'll come back to the question when I, uh, when I, when I remember it. Um, with regards to the parliamentary process, I mean, some people have argued that, you know, a, a radical change needs to... Uh, to be had at the helm of politics because it seems as if people, as you quite rightly put it now, are more interested in serving the needs uh, or the desires of their own political parties as opposed to those um, of, of, of the populace of South Africa. Um, is there a plan that you guys have as the DA to try and break down that monopoly that sort of exists now um, between, um, you know, uh, member member of parliament, uh, sort of a party member, um, and, and their allegiance to their own political party, and, you know, breaking apart that uh, sort of uh, cater relationship that exists between those two entities, and ensuring that, you know, politicians serve the interests of the public first and foremost, 
before um, those of their own parties was uh, coalition politics a solution perhaps where you know you, we, we try to sort of amalgamate political parties if you will uh, and ensure that they no longer work uh, or, or that one party will serve as a restraining force for, for the other to ensure that they don't act in the interest of their own political parties and serve um, the, the, the public I think in general mm. uh, is that a, an alternative that you not only not only not only do we have a plan we tabled it um, uh, in the I think it was the fifth Parliament our electoral laws amendment bill which would have seen the South African system fundamentally changed and I think that that uh, I, as someone in the political game I can tell you that there's a great disconnect between the elected and the electors uh, you know the partyless system makes parties far too powerful and make citizens, uh, you know, uh, spectators, essentially. They vote for a party, they don't vote for an individual. They have no way of recalling somebody they're unhappy with. They've got no way of phoning somebody and saying, well, you're my MP, I voted for you. If you don't do the following, I won't vote for you in the next election. Uh, and you've got delinquents that just keep coming to the top of the party list, and, and there's no real accountability. So what our uh, private members' bill would have done is fundamentally change the electoral landscape, divide parliament up into... Um, two sets of uh, 200 uh, and allow directly elected members of parliament on a constituency system uh, so citizens actually vote directly for their MP. But what you don't want to then do is allow a system where, particularly in a, in a country as diverse as South Africa with language, culture, uh, you know, the, the, the like, to be excluded. So you would then use a, the other 200 seats to top up on a proportional representation basis. So it'll work the same way that local government works, where you have a vote for the party, but you also have a vote for an individual. And I think that we'll be able to um, you know, narrow the gap. Then I think that, that the proportional representation part of the system lends itself towards coalition government. And this is what's happened in most proportional representation systems around the rest of the world, where no one party emerges as the sort of with a supermajority, that you have coalitions having to be cobbled together. And in those coalitions being cobbled together, you know, no one party can have its sole desire and will, and it's going to be tempered by the, uh, you know, the the uh, wills and desires of yeah. uh, of other actors. Uh, so, how would that work al across yeah. ideological lines? I mean, I, I cannot see, for instance, the DA working with, say, the EFF um, in a coalition because of the uh, stark ideological differences. I mean, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think it would come down to core values and principles, and and for us, uh, certainly going into any coalition, there's four key things that would would be required to to be there for us before we can even start talking about it. First of these is the rule of law and the constitution. Got to be committed to the rule of law and upholding the constitutional uh, values and principles. And the recent behaviour of of the ANC around the Zuma matter, where there's been an open defiance of of uh, the legal process and an open defiance of the constitution, is a good example of what happens when you don't uphold that. Secondly. Uh, a capable state, building a capable state, ending cater deployment, and ensuring that we work to build a state that acts at all times in the best interest. Thirdly, non-racialism, and then fourthly, um, ensuring that we're able uh, to fight corruption and maladministration and to bring clean, accountable government to bear. Mm. Um, but can the DA not be accused of cater deployment of its own kind in the Western Cape? I mean, you, you speak so strongly against cater deployment as if cater deployment is itself a negative um, but can you not be accused of hypocrisy um, for what's happening in the Western Cape, where uh, something similar, essentially, to what's happening nationally? Well, I would I would separate out. Um, you know, and our opponents always use certain examples, but I would separate out political positions from civil service positions. There's one thing being a director general of a department, and another thing altogether being a spokesperson or an advisor in a minister's office. Those are 
political appointments linked to the term of the office bearer, not uh, a permanent deployment into the state. And it's the, certainly the practice the world over that when you're elected into a position, that you can select certain people to come into your private political office. It doesn't mean they're becoming now the head of the civil service for that department. It means that they've got a political role to play there. And yes, like all other political parties, we do have these types of deployments. Okay. But the moment that that office bearer goes, those staff all go with them. They don't stay on in the, in the civil service. Okay, I think that makes sense. I mean, you've very proficiently, you know, sort of laid out at least briefly what, what the DA believes. And I think a lot of it makes sense. I mean, a lot of it is very convincing. But do you think that um, you guys have alienated a large part of the population from this message and sort of wondered why then uh, they don't vote for the DA? Because it seems to me, or I mean, you, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, the DA has been incapable of communicating the liberal message uh, to groups of people that cannot speak English, for instance. Um, I was chatting to a friend the other day and I told him that I've never heard the liberal message being communicated in Zulu, for instance, in KZN, um, whereas it's very easy to communicate, say, uh, socialism and you know, uh, that, that kind of ideology in, in, in a language that people understand. And I think it makes sense why people start absorbing such uh, you know, policies because they make sense to them and they're able to understand them in their own languages. Whereas I've never heard a, a liberal policy being espoused in a language that the great majority can understand. Do you think that that's perhaps a shortcoming that the DA could address through perhaps uh, podcasts such as these mm. in uh, rural communities uh, where people are encouraged or people who understand the literature are encouraged to try and translate it and to try and permeate uh, across society in languages um, th th that people understand. I think it's a very important campaign that the DA is embarking in um, for, for the fight uh, for multilingualism because I think therein lies uh, a large part of, of our solutions for the problems of our country. Uh, for as long as people are incapable of understanding policies and solutions and for as long as c politicians continue to use jargonistic language, people will be alienated. And I fear that you know policies such as yours will be brushed over and will fall onto deaf ears. Well, not necessarily deaf ears. People won't even hear them. They won't even bother listening to them because they feel alienated, firstly, by the language. Uh, and secondly, if, if they could understand the language, it's the jargon that comes along with a lot of these uh, policies. Do you have anything in mind sure. um, you know, th that you think you could put in place to ensure that those alienated communities hear the message that they need to hear? Because I think it is a very powerful message that could change the lives of many South Africans mm -hmm. and that could stop uh, and put an end to this monopoly that currently exists. Um, but I think what it would take is because m South Africans are not inherently stupid. It's because, it's, it's because some political parties have been able to tap into um, uh, a very... Uh, untapped into a sort of a market where they're able to communicate these messages in languages that people are able to understand. But I don't think the same could be said about the DA. Well, look, I mean, I think things like socialism always look much greater on paper than they do in real life. And anyone who's lived through Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Cuba would be able to tell you that. But I think that you, you have hit on something here. And I think it is a shortcoming of liberal parties the world over, actually. And it's, it's what is, I often say is, what liberals are very good at doing is putting the head under the, the bonnet of the car and explaining in graphic detail how the catalytic converter works and how the fuel injection system yeah. works and where the exhaust fumes go and how you know the combustion happens. When most people get into their car, they're thinking about two things, uh, where they're going and the best way to get there. Mm. And I think that we've got to simplify the message. We've got to stop talking about the catalytic converter and start talking about the destination. What do we want for you and your family how are we going to advance you, and how are we going to get you there as quickly as possible? But I mean, and that it, it means that means speaking to people in in language and and taking the liberal concepts and bringing them down to to, to simple points. And land is for one of them is a great example. I think that we can go to people in KwaZulu Natal 
who are living on, on tribal land and said, we want you to own this piece of land. We want you to be a property owner. We want you to be able to leverage the piece of land, to be able to finance, to expand, to improve your, your we want to give you an asset. We want to give you something. Mm-hmm. Rather than talking about, you know, the principles of constitutional property ownership, saying, we want you to be a landowner. We want you to be a business owner. We would like you, you know, your children to go to world-class university. We want you to be have access to a clinic. We don't want you to wait for five hours in a queue. So you, you take the capable state and you take all those liberal concepts, but you distill them down to the core base principles. Because what most voters, and you're absolutely right, voters are not stupid. Voters ask themselves, you know, what's in it for me? What, you know, wh- what are these people saying that speak to me? And I think that, that we've not been good at communicating you know, what life would be like for you if you were to switch your vote to another party. And that's why you see so often these service delivery protests that go on in these towns. And, you know, people go in and they'll burn the town down, they'll burn the school down. The municipalities dissolve, there's an election held, and virtually the same people are re-elected into the... Because people, you know, we, uh, we've not been good enough at selling the compelling alternative. Mm. So people have just simply gone and, and voted as they've always voted. We need to be able to paint in spectacular technicolor that alternative vision and how it would work for you, mm. whether you're sitting in rural Nongoma or whether you're sitting in Constantia. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the problem is twofold. On the one hand, you're up against organizations that will say, well, a large part of what's going wrong in your life is not because of your own doing. Um, and that you could blame it on a celestial governmental force or on, on, on a group of people. Um, and, and there uh, is where your problems come from. And that there is where you need to go for solutions. Some people can can very easily sell an ideology that way. And the, the public can very easily absorb it. But I think the more difficult bit about a liberal message is that it has a sense of personal responsibility to it. Because what it says is, at least some of what's gone wrong in your life is because of your own doing. And that if you could correct that, your life would move in a much better trajectory. Of course, all of the obstacles that have been put in place um, you know, to, to, to sort of hinder you from going where you would like to go must be taken down. But all of that must be done after you have been able to sort of... Uh, fix your own life first and sort of uh, do away with the obstacles that you have placed um, yourself uh, you know, in, in front of yourself. And I think that's a significantly more difficult message to sell it, it than that which blames on a third it party. Is, it is more difficult and you know, it is the liberal dilemma. But here's the thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's not only, I mean, we've got to empower people to live a life of value and be able to you know, bring whatever talent they have to the table in, in repairing and fixing and, and moving South Africa forward. But we can only do that if we focus on giving an equality of opportunity. I think that South Africa and this particular government focuses very much on the equality of outcome rather than the equality of opportunity. If we can give everybody you know, the same opportunity to be all they can be, to live a life of value, to do what they would like to do and empower them as individuals, I think we'd have to worry less about managing the outcome at the end of the pipe. Uh, and I think that, like so many other things, governments trying to solve the problem at the wrong end of the pipe. The, the input is, is the opportunity. The output, you know, if you manage the, 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 the equality at the, at the input, you don't then have to sit trying to racially bean count and, you know, uh, do you know, uh, pencil tests and skin color swabs to, to determine, you know, how you manage the outcome. It would have been managed at the front of the pipe of everybody. It's an equal access to opportunity in South Africa. Mm. But, but can liberalism not be accused of being a European ideology that appeals to European civilization? Absolutely only? not. And I think if you look at some of, uh, and I think South Africa is a great example of that. If you look at some of the earliest 
um, African intellectuals in the early 19th century, they were all liberals. They all you know, believed in liberal thought. Uh, you know, these were these were giants of of, of a liberal movement. And uh, you know, I, I think that it, it is not a, a Western concept. And in fact, it is in a society like ours and like many other African countries, the only way in which people will be able to be governed because what liberalism does is, is recognizes people as individuals, not as members of tribes or groups or religious organizations and says, well, you're a person of value and we want you to unlock what you have in the service of, you know, of, of, of the broader society. And you know, we, we, we can transcend through liberalism many of these tribal uh, schisms that you see happening in places like Rwanda and Burundi and other places and a lot of the blights on the continent when you recognize people as individuals and not as envoys of their race, tribe, language group or religious group. Mm. And I think that uh, you know, is why liberalism is the only efficient way, I think, that we can govern in a place like South Africa where there's just so many different uh, differences and that we accept each other's differences as well. And we allow each other to speak the languages that we want to. We allow each other to you know, love who, who they want to. And we allow people to, you know, to live the life that they would like to lead without interfering uh, in, you know, in their ability to do so. Mm. so. So I thought what we'd do in the time that remains uh, is, so, so I was speaking to some of my friends uh, a few days before you know, this podcast, uh, and I told them that I'd be having John Steenhazen at the studio today. And they sent me a list of questions that they would sure. like me to ask you. Uh, so I want you to prepare yourself. Oh boy. <laughs> Are these um, students? Uh, some of them okay, are. Okay, great. Uh, some yeah. of them are. Um, some of them are a bit long-winded, but I have tried mm -hmm. to condense some of them. But I will read you some of the questions uh, that some of my friends sent. The first one's from Younger Geva, who is a postgraduate LLB student here at the University of Stellenbosch. And his question reads as follows. Uh, the Re-Afrikaans Brigade distorts the issue of language at Stellenbosch University to seem as if it is a battle between English and Afrikaans. That is false. The true tension must be resolved. that must be resolved is that the right to mother tongue tuition is a noble and good ideal. However, how can that ideal be equally recognized for all Stellenbosch University students? It appears that the DA believes that only Afrikaans Stellenbosch University students deserve mother tongue tuition. Is the new DA mantra that only Afrikaans students deserve to be given an extra advantage over other students of different mother tongues because all languages are equal and some more equal than others? My question is, why is the DA on the inequality, uh, what is the DA's position on the inequality created by the current language policy on mother tongue tuition for other native language speakers? Yes. Well, I think that, uh, you know, just to clear up the misconception, uh, this has never been about Afrikaans. Uh, I mean, I'm not an Afrikaans speaking person, I'm an English South African, and when I speak Afrikaans, I, I think I lose the party votes. <laughs> but, you know, I think that I don't have to be an Afrikaans person to understand the desire of people to, to want to speak in their mother tongue and and be educated in the mother tongue. And I think that what we should be doing is expanding um, mother tongue education. It's not just about Afrikaans. It's around the crowding out of English of every other one of the other mother tongues uh, languages in South Africa. We have a constitution that recognizes 11 official languages. We've got a Bill of Rights that gives people the right to be able to express themselves and to receive tuition. But we need nothing to expand those rights in South Africa. Uh, and so you've got universities in KwaZulu-Natal where the predominant language spoken in, in the region is Isizulu, and yet the predominant language of instruction is English. And so it applies equally there. And I think that you've got to start looking at regional dynamics as well. And, and I think that you know, given the modern world that we live in and the technology that now exists, I mean, I can stand up in Parliament with 400 other people in the room and speak any one of the 11 official languages and get translation. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why universities could not be looking at, look, it's impossible that every university is going to be able to run all 11 official languages. 
I don't think three languages is too much to ask. Mm. Um, you know, here at Stellenbosch, you could have uh, the predominant languages in the region are Afrikaans, English, and and Isitkosa. You know, you could be be doing it in, in KwaZulu Natal. It might be different. It might be uh, English Zulu and and one other. Um, University of Fort Hare will be Isitkosa. So I, you know, I think that what we've got to do, and it's, it's a conversation we haven't had, mm. is how we expand these rights. And I'm determined that the DA recognizing people's individual rights to be able to speak the language of their choice mm. but I mean, must be expanded. Mm. But isn't the challenge that, you know, with Afrikaans, we can put a finger to it and say, well, this is what the DA has done to try and further, you know, the uh, Afrikaans language in South Africa. But we can't really say the same with another African language. And I think that's where many people have the quarrel, have a quarrel with the DA's position. Yeah. Um, and why would that be? Because I, I, well, I'm not I have sure an answer I, yeah. that I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how you'd respond yeah. to. I, I think it's a lot easier, especially in a place like Stellenbosch, uh, where tuition was carried out solely in Afrikaans. I mean, all the infrastructure is already there in Stellenbosch, so it's a lot easier to implement it there. Um, it's going to be a lot more costly uh, to try and introduce, for instance, this clause that before you introduce this uh, before you introduce Afrikaans in Stellenbosch because the framework for his clauses simply isn't there at the moment. And the costs that need to go into that and to, to create the infrastructure for it are going to be significantly greater than those um, that are there or, or th those that would be needed to sort of bring back Afrikaans uh, in Stellenbosch. Is, is that a good enough Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, that is, it, certainly in the Stellenbosch example, it's, it's, it's a good enough explanation. I think that there's, you know, this university taught in Afrikaans for, for, for I think, decades, yeah. upon decades. I mean, the, you can't say the infrastructure doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean that we should be yes. expanding yes. rather than you know conserving we should be expanding to you know to other to other languages particularly uh, you know knowing that there's a lot of SE closer speaking people that, that live now in the Western Cape and you know we, we must accept that that the regional dynamic shows that and you know I think that the cost you know, given where we're sitting at and given the fact that there's a constitutional imperative that recognizes it it shouldn't come down to cost I mean Money shouldn't be the object. I mean, if we can spend what we're spending on Donnell and Eskim and SAA and all that, people cannot tell me that, that you know, money is an object in South Africa. Let's rather spend it on worthwhile things. And what worries me is that many of these, of these, uh, of the Nguni languages and others really, and, and some of the smaller languages run the risk of extinction. And we, you know, we've seen this happen in, in Europe where English essentially crowded out uh, these languages that no longer exist anymore. And I think it speaks to the wonderful diversity of the country that we've got all these 11 official languages. Let's expand the opportunity for people to be able to speak them, learn in them, write academic articles in them to keep those languages alive. Mm. So I think just one final question before we jump on to the next one. Um, is, is there a plan for another African language that isn't Afrikaans uh, currently in the DA's prescript? Yes, Leon Schreiber is working uh, on uh, Nisi Zulu probe in KwaZulu-Natal around the uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal and uh, I think there's going to be some exciting news about that uh, in, the, in the coming weeks but we're going to be taking the mother tongue education not Afrikaans yeah. mother tongue education to the floor of parliament for a discussion uh, and we're going to to make sure that, that all of these languages are given the equal respect and uh, entrenchment that they deserve. Mm. I think it's a pity that we cannot have a back and forth with the people who, who submitted these questions because I think it would have done... Oh, we can arrange that. Uh, we will see. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, so, the next so the next question is from Robert Kuchera, who's pursuing his master's through the University of Stellenbosch as well. Uh, and he submitted the following question. 
uh, within the context of a global pandemic, which has caused extensive socioeconomic damage, further exacerbating the structural inequalities we see in South Africa today. You decided to visit Stellenbosch University on the 10th of March to investigate alleged language discrimination against Afrikaans speakers. My question is, why does the DA continually ignore the specific challenges faced by black South Africans, and does this visit symbolize an ideological and demographical shift within the DA? No, not at all. And um, the visit was planned uh, in advance, and obviously... Uh, as a result of the of the reports that were coming out from the university, and one of uh, my predecessors, uh, Helen Sussman, uh, famously said, you know, "Go and see for yourself." And that's exactly what we came to do. I don't rely on hearsay, and I came to engage with students here on the campus, just as I've engaged with uh, rural farmers uh, three weeks ago in in rural black farmers in in Coxstead, KwaZulu Natal, who are facing eviction from their from their lands, just as I've engaged with. Uh, Coloured communities in the Northern Cape with problems, and it's not it, you know I think we mustn't uh, it doesn't have to be a trade or a, a trade off an either or it can be an and you know you can speak up against farm murders and GBV at the same time mm. just because you're doing one doesn't mean you don't believe strongly about the other and I think that what 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 happens is people often see you know political parties as one dimensional we're not we're we're multi dimensional and we can be driving a number of issues. At the same time, so at the same time, we're driving the issue here at Stellenbosch. We were driving the, a court case for Mr. Khatse in Limpopo to be able to be given what he was promised, which was a title deed to the land that he's rented. And he has now got that, I'm proud to say it. And uh, we stand up for all South Africans. We're a party for all South Africans. We're certainly not uh, you know, here for one race group, one language group. Uh, we're here to fight for all the people in South mm. Africa. Okay. Uh, the next question is from Caroline De Silva, a uh, retired divisional executive for regulatory policy at the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. Uh, she has a question around the effectiveness of parliamentary portfolio committees and how partisan politics impacts on your ability to oversee and pass laws, resulting in lack of accountability and unchecked corruption in SOEs and government departments. This has become more apparent during the Zondo Commission. How do you drive change so that committees serve the people and not their parties? We touched on this a little bit. But yeah, I think so I mean, I think that it. I think that there are some notable exceptions, but I think that analysis is, is largely accurate. Is that there's a voting along party lines. One of those where that was different was uh, the Public Enterprises Committee, where uh, Nat- current Chief Whip Natasha Mazzoni served, and I think people came together across party lines, albeit quite late in the day to start to speak up and speak out against state capture. And I think that, that committee's eventual report that they tabled in Parliament was a spectacular bipartisan uh, effort in terms of, of getting to the root of how we had state capture and why we must ensure it never happens again. Mm-hmm. Just uh, a week ago in Parliament, there was a historic vote where the DA and the ANC and a few other parties voted together to uh, initiate uh, imp- uh, impeachment inquiry into Busasiwa Mkwabane, the current public protector, uh, you know, there's a, a classic example of, of people across party lines working together in the best interest. We've got to, and I think it also change, it needs to change the structure of parliament to be able to allow that. So if you look at other parliaments around the world, uh, the chairpersonships of committees are not necessarily held on a partisan basis just because the Conservative Party are in power in, in, in the House of Commons they're still Labour Party chairpersons of portfolio committees because they elect the best chairpersons and they you know, recognise the committees as engine rooms where growth can happen. I think that Judge Zondo was right to call out many of those committees saying, why did, were you not calling, why were you ignoring the opposition's requests for debate and these things? Why were you ignoring uh, the, you know, what was being tabled and requested of you? And it all comes down to smashing the stranglehold that parties have on, on the political system and 
you know, and, and making the people the bosses again in, in politics, not the, the party leaders. And I think that is, when you have MPs sitting in a committee or in parliament acting in the best interest of the citizens, may belong to a political party, that's fine, and they caucus together, etc. but they act in the best interests of the citizens. I think that's when you're going to see fundamental change in accountability in South Africa. Mm, makes sense. Uh, the next one's from Standi Wemsomi, uh, an economics student at Wits University. She has a bit of a long-winded question, so yeah, hold your breath. Um, and her question reads as follows. A resolution once passed from the DA, and she quotes, each individual is unique and not a racial or gender envoy. Individuals, when free to make their own decisions, will not be represented in any and every organization, sector, company, or level of management, according to a predetermined proposition. She closes the quotes and she proceeds as follows. As the official opposition, how do you think colorblind policies will solve structural issues that have not been caused by the fault necessarily of non-white communities, but through centuries of institutionalized racism? I do agree that man's greatest gift is that he is the master of his own fate. However, to ignore race in a country like South Africa where young people in rural South Africa are still sparsely separated from cities, not due to their own doing, but through apartheid homelands that still exist today, and where many young people who, who come from a generation of parents who were taught uh, only the skills that black people needed, in, this, in the words of Favut himself, are structurally excluded from universities, is, is rather very fatal and can continue to create an equal yet inequitable society. I do agree that BEE and affirmative action has done nothing to empower the most poorest of the poor in this country, but how does the DA plan to deliver solutions to uproot the structural racism that apartheid entrenched and is still present today? What surety do we have that non-racial based policies will ensure that white Indian and black children have an equal chance of self-actualization in South Africa without the remnants of apartheid being an evident contributing factor to one's destiny? She then follows it up and qualifies it with parentheses and says the following. Again, I'm not blaming every calamity on apartheid, but a drive through Umlazi or seeing the remnants of the labor migratory system present today is enough to show one that the color blindness that the DA employs is really just oblivion to bigger issues, at least in my opinion. Well, I don't think the DA is colorblind. I think that's the, the first misconception. Um, you know, anyone who says that race doesn't matter in South Africa is not living in reality. Of course race matters. And race matters because the large part of people who remain dispossessed, that large part of that 30 million, the 99.7% of them, are poor black South Africans. And that is directly as a result of those policies uh, to which she refers. So we've got to overcome those. But I think the key point in her, in her question there is, it still is, and which shows that the policies that have been used to date to try and address those inequalities, uh, that exclusion, have not worked. And surely the time has come for us to try something new. And our view is that you manage the equality of opportunity, as I said earlier, at the front end of the pipe and give everybody, no matter whether you're a rural uh, a rural child, a, a urban child, no matter you know, well, the circumstance of your birth, you get an equal opportunity to get a good quality education to live in a safe community, to be able to have access to clean running water and electricity and the focus on, on, the, on getting those things right and overcoming the, this inequality and building housing opportunities like we're doing in places like the city of Cape Town, uh, making sure people have, have access to title. That's the only way you're going to turn things around. It's not about being colorblind. It's just saying that if we continue to see people only according to their race or or to, you know, to their language or the like, we're, we're, we're going to end up with the same problem uh, that we're trying to, trying to fix. And mm. we're not going to move the country forward like that. Um, no one's denying that apartheid existed, and apartheid was deeply damaging, and you know, we're living today with the, the terrible effects of it. 
And we've got to, we've got to focus on overcoming that legacy. But as I've said and so many times you know, on this podcast, we're not going to overcome them by you know, using the same style of policy that created them in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's rather see people about you know on, on the individual value and what they offer and what they can contribute and make sure that they have an equal shot uh, at being able to achieve whatever they would like to achieve in life rather than trying to, as I say, manage outcomes yeah. at the end of it. Um, so Stanley's question focused very uh, intensely on inequality. The next question from Bung Musangwanyana, who's a wealth advisor at PSG Wealth at Mslanga in Durban. Uh, he, oh, he, my he, hometown. <laughs> <laughs> he, he takes a bit of a different approach, and he, his, his question reads as follows. Can we ever close the poverty gap by, ta- by taking from those who have and giving to those who do not have? Does this help level the scales? Does this open a door uh, to the end of a culture that is pro-racism? What should be done differently to achieve a better outcome given the above-mentioned socioeconomic issues having been prevalent for the past 25 or 26 years post the end of the apartheid regime? Mm-hmm. So the reason I read these two questions in conjunction, in conjunction so to speak, uh, is because I think they hit on two very, very different, but I think uh, almost inter- in- interconnected issues, which is poverty and inequality. Which between the two issues, if you were to pick, do you think is, one, is the one that we need to be focusing more on? Do you think, as Stanley's question, as Tandiwe's question would almost suggest, that inequality is what we need to be uh, focusing on? Or do you think that, according to Bong Musa's question, um, we, we need to be focusing more on uh, poverty and trying to alleviate poverty? I think the two are evil twins that feed each other. I don't think you can separate them from each other. I think we have inequality because of poverty, and I think we have poverty because of inequality. Is, is, is that true, though? I mean, yeah, uh, I, I do you, think you, it is. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure it is. I yeah. mean, you could have inequality uh, in a very wealthy society where people are just uneven or unequally rich. Um, but not yeah. in the South African context. And I think if you look in the South African context, if you look at the inequality, it's largely race-driven. And if you look at poverty, it's largely race-driven. But where I, gr- I agree with um, with my friend from Amshlanga is that you know we're not going to you know, solve the problem by fighting over a small slice of cake. We've got to be buy, you know, baking more cakes. And that comes down to economic growth because that is the only way that we're going to address both those twin evils is through getting the economy growing, uh, getting investment into productive enterprise and ensuring that, that we create more opportunities for more people. I mean, the more the economy grows, the greater the opportunity. The more the economy, uh, more people have access to jobs, uh, the, the greater, the, the lesser the inequality will be. So you know, I think that 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 has got to be the focus of the South African government. And what frustrates me the most about the current administration is its lack of, uh, I don't know, is this a family show? The lack of balls to, <laughs> you know, to get on and and get out there to actually make the reforms that are required. And you know, that for me is my biggest disappointment in the president is that, mm. you know, here he's had every opportunity at South Africa behind him. Get the economic reform agenda on the table and let's get this economy moving. Retreating into radical socialism, uh, like we see, you know, the, the way the RET faction, the ANC is dragging, is going to put this country onto the fast forward to Venezuela. And what happens in those societies? More inequality, greater poverty, lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality rates, hunger, suffering. We've got to avoid that. And the only way we avoid that is by ensuring we protect our economy. And then we go out and grow it so that the people that we that have submitted those questions you know, have got greater opportunity to be able to uh, 
to succeed and, and be more successful and build a future for them and their family. Mm. So, so I've left this question for last because it is a it's bit a different. It's a tough one. No, it, it is okay. a tough one, but I think it is a bit different from the sure. style of questions that we have had before. Uh, it's from Sfundonala, a legal student from the University of Pretoria, and his question reads as follows. Uh, my question pertains to the so-called welfare states in general and social grants in particular. I feel that social grants, at least in their current form, are not incentivizing independence. How then can one argue that they are actually helping? Sure, as political expediency will have it, they have increasingly been providing the poor with an income to put food on the table. But surely the hallmark of a successful social grant system is measured by increasingly fewer dependents and not more, contrary to what Minister Lindu Azulu would argue. I'm not calling for austerity or anything. I'm merely just thinking out loud. Firstly, what do you make of my assessment and what, if anything, would you propose as a sound alternative? So, look, I mean, I think that the thing that frustrates me every year is that you, got, you get government... Uh, proudly boasting that they've got, you know, X million people on social grants. And I don't think that's a proud boast at all. And I think government should be embarrassed by it. Uh, you, what you don't want is you want people, you want people to be on jobs and, and be able to work. But the reality is that in a country where we have a 42% expanded unemployment rate, you need some form of safety net to stop people from going hungry. And the, the sad reality is that, and I've been out in many, many communities across South Africa, people don't want to be on social grants. Just say to me, I want a job. I want to be able to build a future. I can't survive on, you know, on, on the social grant. Uh, you know, it's not enough money. And the tragedy is that often that each social grant is feeding at least four other people. Uh, and, I mean, that is, that, that is phenomenal. You remove that system and South Africa slips into, into hunger and deprivation. But, again, the answer lies in growing the economy, ensuring that we're creating more jobs, we're creating more opportunities. The more people we get into work, the less people we have on welfare. But I don't think we, uh, any society could ever just exist with a laissez-faire, you're on your own, you know, you know, get out there and make it happen, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes, there is individual responsibility, but people do fall in hard times, and, mm. and, and life does get hard. And particularly in the South African context, I've said we're, we're negative economic growth and we've got such high unemployment and, uh, and so little opportunity. You need that safety net there, otherwise... Mm. You're going to end up with mass starvation. So so, so I think Sfundo also agrees with that, but I think his question is directed more at an alternative or a way of restructuring the current system. Because I think the argument is prefaced on a belief that it's the system itself that's the problem. It's trying to attract as many people into it as possible. And once people have been attracted and trapped into the system, they cannot find a way out. I was reading a story the other day. I can't quite remember the guy's name who was telling it. Um, But he said that uh, he he was stuck in a very precarious position where uh, he he, he had a job or he he was a social grant, um, but because there's an income threshold beyond which you cannot go uh, and still retain the social grant, he could not take the job that was offered to him because if he took it, marginal though the increment uh, is to his income, uh, you know, it, it would do away with the social grant. So he seemed uh, to argue that he'd be better off with the social grant, with receiving the income without having to work for it, as opposed to going to work, earning this salary that's marginally more than the social grant and having to pay all these bills himself. So I think Sfundo's question is prefaced on that fundamental belief that it's the system itself that's the issue and maybe a reformation, not a complete repudiation of the yeah, system, absolutely. but a reformation. It has of to the be system. a reformation of it. I mean, uh, because it is being abused at the moment. I mean, I, my colleague, Dr. Mimi Gondwe, who serves on the Public Service um, Committee in Parliament, put a statement today saying that there were uh, 20,000 government employees who claimed the 350 rand a month um, you know, uh, hardship grant that was doing the round. So clearly there's a huge problem with credibility. But then also I think you, what you've got to do is to use it as a way to transition people into work. So right. in the UK they, they dra- developed a, a program where if you were offered work and you refused that work, a job, 
then your benefits would, would decrease. Uh, and so we, you know, we've got to encourage people into work. But in South Africa, the problem is there's just no jobs. Uh, there's just no jobs for, for, for 42% of our, of our population. And that is, that is you know, significant. So again, you know, we've got to reform the welfare system. But the best way to reform it is get people into jobs and work and, and, and real jobs, any jobs, not just this, you know, the government puts out this public works jobs. You know, it's basically talk labor where you mm. work a few days a, a, a month. And ironically, government's the only employer in the country is allowed to play below the minimum wage. And many of these people on these public works things are, are earning below minimum wage. Mm. So um, it's it's important that we that we reform the welfare system, but, you know, and, and that we, we move to an incentivization to work. But we've also then got to stimulate the, you know, the, the, the jobs of the supply side uh, by creating jobs uh, in South Africa. And government can't do that. It needs to unleash the private sector to unshackle you know, the, uh, you know, these businesses from all the red tape in South Africa, mm-hmm. to stop de- you know, re- uh, being, you know, adopting policies that are deterrents to foreign direct investment. Our foreign direct investment fell by 46% in 2020. The uh, government says, oh, well, that's the world over. In the region, sub-Saharan Africa, it only fell by 11%. So clearly what South Africa is doing is repellent to foreign direct investment. Why is this important? Because our domestic savings rates are so low in South Africa, we need foreign capital to invest into in our enterprises to, to get our economy moving again. Mm. So we've got to stop you know, with these madcap policies, these socialist policies, and start becoming investor-friendly and opening the doors to South Africa so that we can grow the cake and you know, stop bickering over the crumbs that, mm. that we're currently doing. Yeah, I mean, I think we, go, we could go on the whole day mm-hmm. discussing uh, you know, some of the issues that we have touched on now. I mean, it's been, a, in many ways, a very difficult conversation for me to have because you are one of uh, my heroes, one of, a personal hero of mine. So it's been very difficult for me to have this conversation with you because I agree, by and large, with everything that you have to say. Oh. But I think it, it was uh, incumbent upon me to try and be yeah, fair, absolutely. to try and represent uh, as diverse uh, a variety of opinions as I possibly could, which was, I think, quite difficult to do in this conversation because I agreed very much with uh, a lot of but what you said. But it would be nice to, to come back and uh, unpack you know, and spend an episode unpacking you know, each of the topics, yeah. land reform, you know, what our alternatives are. Because, I, I mean, I think that's my big frustration with, with the mainstream is that they always portray the DA as criticising without putting on the table workable alternatives. If you look at you know, our website, you look at our policy suite, we've got workable alternatives to everything. And I'd love to be able to unpack... You know what our vision is to is to make people landowners. How we get the economy moving, and maybe get some of our other people in to to also talk about about their portfolios. Yeah, so I think this was a wonderful conversation to start. Yeah. Um, you know, a conversation like that off, um, and, and I think it's been wonderful. I've le- certainly learned a lot, um, and I'm sure that the people who will be listening to this will also have gained something. Um, if it was a few myths that were dispelled, if it was clarity that was made, um, I think it would have been uh, very good, not just for myself and other like-minded individuals, but for those who disagree as well. I mean, I've already mentioned to you that you are a personal hero and I absolutely love the work that you do. I just hope that you soldier on uh, and whenever you feel like you don't have any support, you know that you've got our back uh, <laughs> and, and you'll continue to have our back for as long as you're doing the work that you're doing, the work that you're doing on the ground. The fact that you have taken the time to come here today shows your dedication of, you know, for, the, for our country really um, to take time uh, just to come and have a conversation with me. It's, it's, it's something that I'm never going to forget. I'm extremely grateful for it. Uh, and yeah, I just, yeah, I don't have the words for it. Really. I've enjoyed it immensely <laughs> as well. And I can't wait for the next time. So, mm. you know, these are the conversations we've got to be having. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of work to do to get South Africa moving forward and get South Africans working again. And it starts with acknowledging where the problems are and talking them through. And 
moving forward from there. Yeah, well, I think that's a wonderful note to, hand, to end on. It's been a wonderful conversation. And once again, thank you so, so much for coming. Look forward to the next time. Thank you.